Good morning. It is such a delight and joy to be with you all. I bring greetings from the brothers and sisters at Edgefield Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you, Pastor Blake, for praying for us and for our congregation. What a joy on my first time ever in the state of Arkansas to get to worship with all of you and enjoy the fellowship and unity that we have together in Christ. Thank you, Blake, for the warm invitation to be here and to see how the Lord is at work in and among all of you. Is anyone in charge of the universe? And does he care? Is anyone in charge? And, and does he care about me? It's one of these timeless questions that people have been pondering for centuries. It's the question at the center of a memoir by the Scottish author Mez McConnell. His book is called Is Anybody Out There? In his book, Mez tells the tragic story of his own life, a childhood experiencing neglect and abuse and really unspeakable horrors inflicted on him, even by members of his own family. All of this happened in his life even before he ever turned 13. And then at the age of 13, his social worker, the, the person, the one person he'd been looking to for hope and help, ended her own life. McConnell writes, that was the first time I consciously questioned life. I began to question my own mortality. I, I thought I believed in God, but who was God? What did he have to do with me? What had he ever done for me? Was there a reason for all this madness? You hear what he was asking? Is there anyone in charge? And does he care? I think if you were to walk around Fort Smith and talk to folks, just like if you were to walk around my home city of Nashville and, and chat with people at the mall or on the street and ask them, do you believe that someone is in charge and does he care? you would get four different answers. You might hear four different responses, basically. First would be the person who says, no one's in charge and no one cares. This is the skeptic. This is the cynic. We might call him or her the agnostic or the atheist. The person who says, no, we're all just a product of chance. And so it's a vicious world. You just got to fight your way through. You just got to try to survive. Second, you might talk to someone who believes there, there must be some sort of divine being who cares, but it doesn't seem like he's really in charge of anything. This is the person who says, you know, maybe God is like a cosmic watchmaker. He sets up the gears and he winds up the mechanisms of the world, but then he just sort of sits back and lets it all unfold. And he's just watching all of us from his cosmic movie theater. He cares about us, but only from afar. He's not troubling himself to get involved with our everyday lives. Third might be the person who says, well, sure, I believe there is someone in charge of everything, but he just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to care about me. Uh, this is the person that looks out at the wars and the genocides of history or they look at the disease and the sickness and the sadness of their own life and concludes that God must be cold. He must be indifferent, hard. I wonder if any of these three views so far is your perspective today. I, I don't 
know, most of you, I don't know what you come in thinking about the universe and life and God. This really isn't just an abstract question uh, for freshman philosophy students to ponder. This is something that gets to the core of everyday life. Is there someone out there who's in charge and who cares for us? And in fact, if there were a God who was in charge and who actually cares for us, wouldn't it be consistent to think that such a God would cause us to have this question in our hearts, to wonder if he might be there, to, to, to wonder who he might be? Which leads to the fourth person that you might meet here in Fort Smith or, or in Nashville, the person who tells you yes, despite all of the challenges and all of the sorrows and all the pain of this life, I can testify to you confidently that there is someone who is in charge and I know that he cares. And we're going to meet that person today. It's the author of Psalm 147. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles provided in the seats, and you can find this text on page 303. I would encourage you to turn there. We're going to be walking through this psalm together. If, if you're not used to being in church, what we're going to spend our time doing now is listening to what God says to us in his word and, and taking a close look because we believe that what he says here has the power to transform our lives. The psalms were the songbook of Israel. And in this last section of the book of Psalms, from Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, uh, each of these begins and ends, as you, as you can kind of scan over them if you want to flip around and see, they all begin and end with a simple refrain, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's the word hallelujah. These are the praise psalms. The book of Psalms covers all the whole range of human emotions from sadness and anger and frustration and disappointment and joy, but it crescendos and culminates in this final symbol clash of praise to God. So who is this God? And why should we praise him? Listen as I read. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. 
He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Here's a phrase that I think sums up the whole psalm, and it's going to be our outline for this morning, this big idea for the text. Praise God for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. Those are the three things we should praise God for, his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. Let's consider first how we're to praise God for his strong comfort. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6. Psalmist begins in verse 1 telling us to praise the Lord because it is good to sing praises to our God. So what does the word praise mean? This is a very churchy sort of word. If you've grown up going to church, you've probably heard the word of praising the Lord a lot. What does it mean to praise someone? To praise God is to declare with delight his unsurpassed value and authority. To praise God is to declare with delight his unsurpassed value and authority. So praise involves our hearts and our voices. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We might say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth sings. Because he says a song of praise is pleasant. It is fitting. It's the most appropriate thing in the world to do, to give God glory. But it's also pleasurable. It is not just a duty, but it's a delight. Songs have a great power to connect the things we believe and the, th the things that we delight in in our hearts to what we know to be true. So the psalmist is telling us that God is worthy not just of statements of praise that you would write down, not just of a statement of praise that you might say in conversation, not just a statement of praise that you might formulate in a book. He's worthy of all these things, but he is worthy of songs out loud that others can hear, songs that help connect our affections in our hearts with the facts. Did you, did you notice as Blake was leading us this morning how he talked to us about our, our faith being rooted in the facts of who God is, the reality of who God is? Songs help connect what we love with the facts about God. So what are those facts? Look at verse 2. These are the reasons the Lord is worthy of such songs of praise. He says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but it appears to be around the time that Israel returned home. They came back to the promised land after decades, decades of being in exile, far away in Babylon. You see, God had punished his people's sin and their unfaithfulness. He had cast them out of their land. He had ordained that foreign armies come and capture them and defeat them. They were taken away into other nations, into Babylon, because of their idolatry, because they had walked in injustice. And so we can see why these exiles would be described as, as outcasts, people who are brokenhearted, people who are wounded, 
They had suffered decades of painful captivity. Why? Because of their own sin. But exile wasn't the end of the story. God showed mercy to the remnant of his people who trusted him. About 70 years later, after the exile, God miraculously brought them back again to their own homeland. Through people like Ezra and Nehemiah, he rebuilt Jerusalem again, as verse 2 says. You can read more about it by turning to the books of the Bible named after those great leaders. So imagine if you can bring your, your mind to the Middle East, and if you can picture through the trail of dust a sort of small band of hobbling exiles coming back to a Jerusalem that's still in ruins, their bodies and souls wounded by the afflictions of imprisonment in a foreign land, and yet God hasn't forgotten them, God hasn't forsaken them. He welcomes them back, and the psalmist invites them to raise their frail voices in praise to the God who is mighty to comfort them, to forgive them. I wonder what are your wounds this morning? Is it the pain of life in a fragile body? Is it the scars of broken relationships? The bitter hurts of betrayal by family, by friends, by people who, who even took the name of Christian Christ? This psalm is honest about the woundedness of the human condition. The Bible is brutally honest that life in this world is full of wounds and hurts. But this psalm also shows us the only one that we can go to for lasting comfort and for true healing. The picture that these verses give us is not of a God who's far off, who's sort of distant and disinterested. It's not a God who's watching you through the thick glass of the operating room. If you've ever been in a hospital, you know sometimes you can watch through the thick glass as the doctors are caring for someone. It's, it's not that God's sitting back on a chair in the waiting room with his arms crossed wondering what's going to happen. No, he himself is the surgeon. He himself is the healer. He is using his gentle scalpel. And sometimes when he goes to work on us, it can be a little painful. But you know that the doctor has your interests in mind. He is using that scalpel to heal, to bind up, to apply his balm to our deepest wounds, which are the wounds of our own sin against him. He's the only one who can forgive us, who can heal us, who can change us. I love taking my kids to the playground uh, near where we live. We walk up, they call it Dinosaur Park because there's a purple dinosaur there. And when they run around, and this, this tends to happen a lot, and, and fall and skin their knee, and they have a wound, who do they run to? Well, they run to me. I'm daddy. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not really great with Band-Aids and that, all that. But they don't care. They run to me because they're, they're looking for someone who is strong enough in that moment to comfort them. It's the same for these exiles of Israel. It's the same for you and me this morning. Whatever your wounds may be, there is only one whose arms we can run to and jump into. If you have made yourself an outcast from God, he is not shaking his head at you. He's not sitting back here waiting for you to come to him. He is running to you. 
He is welcoming outcasts and exiles home in Christ. And this is why the psalmist reminds us of God's wisdom and his strength. Look at verse 4. This is God who determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. He's saying if God is the sovereign ruler of the universe who put each galaxy in place, well, how much more does he care for you, his redeemed sons and daughters? Now, I was curious, so I did a little bit of Google research here because I wanted to know how many stars we're talking about. If you're a kid here this morning, I wonder if you've ever gone out at night and looked up at the sky and tried to count the stars and see how many you could count. It's worth trying sometime. I wonder how high you could get up to. Well, scientists, at least according to Google, so take it with a grain of salt, but what I determined on the internet is that there's roughly 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There are around 100 billion galaxies in the universe. That yields an estimate of a three with 22 zeros after it. Now, it makes my head spin to even fathom that number. That's a number so big that I can't even pronounce it. And yet God made that many stars and he oversees them all like a general commanding a vast army. That's why the psalmist says in verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In other words, why should you trust this God when you experience wounds and sadness and suffering? We can trust that this God is tender in his care because he is strong enough to rule over this vast creation. Only a God this wise and this strong knows exactly what you are going through and has the power to do something about it. But notice, not everyone experiences his strong comfort. Verse 6, I think, is very sobering. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Each section in this psalm, there's, we're going to see there's three sections. They each begin with a call to praise, and they each end with a contrast. Here, the contrast is between the humble and the wicked. The wicked are those who persist in living as if they are in charge and God is not. Doesn't matter that he made all the stars. Doesn't matter that he gives the stars their name. I'm the boss. I'm going to do life my way. Only the humble know God as comforter. And so, if we're honest, this is a problem for us. Because it's the moment we say to ourselves, yeah, I'm humble. Oh yeah, I'm a humble guy. We fooled ourselves. That's the moment we showed just how prideful we really are. Humility is not the default for human beings. Actually, soberingly, though we are all created in God's image and we're capable of much good and reflecting his own goodness, all of us have chosen to go our own way in various ways, whether outspoken and obvious or whether internal to our own hearts. The better word for us from verse 6 to describe who we are is not humble, but the wicked. Like Adam and Eve of old, like Israel in the Old Testament, all of us have been exiled away from God's presence because of our sin. We're not fit to dwell with him. God is so good. He is so 
holy. He doesn't dwell with the wicked. And yet, in his love and in his mercy, God sent Jesus, his son. Jesus dwelled with us to make us fit to dwell with him. And he did that by sacrificing his own life on the cross as a substitute in the place of anyone who would ever trust in him. So Jesus was the humble one. If you want to look through the Bible and, and look at all the various characters, they're all in various ways, the wicked, the wicked, the wicked, the wicked, until you get to Christ. He's the only true humble one. And yet he was cast to the ground for wicked people like us. On the cross, Jesus was exiled that we might be welcomed in. He was made an outcast that we might be embraced as sons and daughters. He was wounded by his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions, and yet he rose from the dead, showing himself to be great and abundant in power, leading the way back to the presence of the Father for any exile here this morning who would repent of your sin and believe in Christ. That's who the humble are. They are those who trust in Jesus and are welcomed out of exile with their wounds healed back into the presence of our God. And those are the ones who know the strong comfort of our God and praise him in song. And yet God doesn't only heal us and welcome us back. He also shows us his sustaining care. Point number two this morning, praise God for his sustaining care. Look with me at verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Here in this uh, second section of the psalm, there's another call to praise God. And we see that our praise should include thanksgiving. When the redeemed sing to God, they always sing in the key of gratitude. We play instruments and make melody to God for his glory, as we've already done in the wonderful songs today. Thanksgiving is not a season. It is not one day out of the year. For the Christian, thanksgiving is a lifestyle. Why should we be so grateful? Look at verses 8 and 9. Because our God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. The point if God feeds the ravens, if he feeds the animals, then surely he cares for us, his precious people. We've got to remember in the, in the ancient world where the psalmist is writing, the rains were very important. If God send, didn't send the rains, then you, you didn't eat. Day-to-day -day survival depended on will God provide the rains. Really practically, I think this means for us that every bite we enjoy you know, whether it's a peanut butter sandwich on a Wednesday or a Thanksgiving turkey on a Thursday, every bite is a generous gift from God. He sends the rains. As, as we heard Alan read earlier, the Lord clothes the sparrows. God gives us good gifts, doesn't he? He gives rain. He gives food. He gives church family. He gives friendship. I also want to point out that God gives good gifts of pastors to his church just as he sends the tender rains. I want to praise God for your pastor, for Blake. What a gift he is to me. I've known Blake for five or six years now. And what an encouragement he's been to my soul through his scriptural counsel, through his challenging questions that he's asked me to, 
to push me to trust more in the Lord through his prayerfulness, through the way that he knows his Bible backwards and forwards. So for, for all of you at Chaffee Crossing, I pray that you have experienced Blake and his wonderful family, Julie and their kids, as tender rains from God coming down from heaven. Yeah, they're not perfect, but they are a great gift to this church. And all the elders that the Lord has given you and all who serve are likewise gifts that God gives as part of his sustaining care for his congregation. This is how he feeds us spiritually. He gives us pastors who are faithful to proclaim God's word to us. He gives us servants and volunteers and saints who are faithful to lead us in singing with thanksgiving as we've already sung this morning. These verses are teaching us what in theological terms is called God's providence. That's a word that means that God provides for and sustains and governs every inch of his creation. He cares for all creatures in his common grace. We were driving around Fort Smith yesterday and I saw some horses just rolling in the grass. God cares for the horses. He cares for the dogs. He cares for the birds. But he especially cares for us, his chosen people. As one of the great old catechisms put it, all things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That's what providence means. You know, a natural question that many people have when they consider God's providence and, and read verses like this one is what about when people get sick? Or, or what about even when Christians suffer or starve and die? Has God's providence failed them at that point? We have to remember this is a fallen world. Until Jesus comes back, we will face sickness, some of us. We'll face challenges. All of us will die. Sickness and starvation are effects of the curse from, from Genesis 3. We can go back and see that sin brought these things into the world. For all who are in Christ, God has removed the judgment we deserve for our sin, but he has ordained that we still live out our days in this world until we finally come home where the curse of death is no more. And in his providence, he sustains us for every breath that he deems is best for us. He determines the length of our days, right? If he can determine the number of stars and call them each by name, we can trust him to determine the length of our days. And sometimes the way God provides for a hungry believer is not by another earthly meal, but it's by bringing them home to glory, to the wedding feast that overflows and never ends. And that leads us to the contrast at the end of this section, verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. There could be a military reference here. The strength of the horse is the cavalry. The legs of the man is an infantry. We know that Israel throughout the years was tempted to trust in the armies of other nations for help rather than trusting in their God. And in that way, they're just like us, right? We, we so easily trust in the strength of our resume or the strength of our connections or the strength of our grades or the strength of the degrees we've earned rather than trusting in God. These sorts of things feel close. God, God feels far away. Or on the flip side, 
if we don't have some of those things that this world looks to, if we don't have the fancy degrees, if we don't have the connections and the networks, then we despair and we think that we have no value and no hope and we'd rather live in self-pity and fear than trust in the Lord. So often it's easy for us to trust, especially those who are on the kind of younger side of the spectrum, to trust in our bodily health, the legs of a man. In 2008, I ran the Chicago Marathon, 26.2 miles. you got to remember the point two. And let's just say the legs of a man, I don't believe, the, at least the legs of this man, were designed to run that far. I only made it to the finish line because of how much ibuprofen I took every you know, certain number of miles along the way. And the point is our bodies will fail us. Whether you're in your 20s trying to run a marathon or whether you're in your 70s or 80s, you, you probably know this, that though pains and aches come and the doctor's visits get more frequent, governments, presidents, armies, jobs, retirement funds, even good gifts like families, all these things eventually fade away. They will fail us in some way or another. They are good gifts, but they're not meant to sustain our deepest hopes. We hope in the, in the Lord of steadfast love. I love that phrase he, he says in verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and put their hope in him. Not the Lord tolerates them. Not the Lord puts up with them. No, he delights in us. Your weakness, your need for God doesn't make him embarrassed of you. It doesn't make him exasperated with you. It makes him long to shower you with his extravagant care. And by fear of the Lord, he doesn't mean like when we get shocked by seeing a, a spider or when we're afraid of heights. This is a full-orbed response of awe and respect to God's great power to care for us like standing before the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls and your heart wells up with a sense of awe at majesty. We tremble at God's majesty, but we tremble with joy because we've tasted his steadfast love. And so I pray that God would make Chaffee Crossing a, a church full of people who trust not in chariots or horses, but who hope in the Lord our God. That's supernatural. That's countercultural. You want to be a countercultural church? Show the surrounding community that your hope is in the Lord. And I encourage you to learn from one another in this. Find others in this church and ask them about their life story. We're family in the Lord. So as Christians, it should be normal to sit with a cup of coffee or to sit over a meal and say, What's, tell me your story, tell me the highs and the lows, and hear how one another have put your hope in the steadfast love of God's sustaining care over the years. And here's what I'll say. Often it's those who are weakest and least significant in the world's eyes who are the best examples of trusting in God's sustaining care. People who are unemployed, people who have a physical disability, children who have put their hope in the Lord, widows, people who have gone through cancer and through difficulties, sit down with them and learn from their feet. Ask them their stories. And may this be a congregation that praises God, not just for his strong comfort, 
but for his sustaining care and the way that he's cared for each one of you over the years and moments of your lives. And as we hear those stories and as we reflect on all that God has done for us in his comfort and his care, it should lead us to ask how. How does God bring about this strong comfort and this sustaining care in our lives? And that's going to lead us to point three this morning. We should praise God also for his sovereign command. Verses 12 to 20 show that God comforts and cares for us by his command, by the power of his word. Look at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. So earlier we saw God comforting the exiles as they return, and now we see him blessing them in the rebuilt city, Jerusalem, uh, which was on the mountain known as Zion. So it was often called Zion. He's giving them security and blessing. He's giving peace on the border, abundant food in every kitchen, the finest of the wheat, it says here. And notice How does he give these blessings to his people? By his command, his word. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 1, how did God create the universe? By speaking. He speaks, and the gates of Jerusalem are strengthened. One word, and his people have food to eat. And of course, it's the same with us. God speaks, and by his command, by his word, is how we have every blessing that we enjoy. But it's also fair to ask the question, how do Old Testament verses about physical blessings apply today? Right? Should we expect God to give us the finest wheat? Should we expect him to give us all these good things if we only ask? Well, we should ask him for what we need. We should bring our needs and our desires as well to him. But we also know that the people of Israel continued to suffer from pain and from hunger and war. Uh, There wasn't perfect peace. So that shows us that these verses point forward. They were only partially fulfilled in the time in which they were written. They would be fulfilled in the greater spiritual peace and prosperity that God has now given us in Christ. And then ultimately they point forward farther still. Because there is a new Zion, a new Jerusalem coming. When Christ returns and he establishes a new heavens, a new earth, that is the day when we will truly, ultimately, feed on the finest of wheat. Where there will be no more war or conflict or terrorism or pain anymore. We will all dwell perfectly secure in God's land forever. And as we look forward to that day, the point that these verses are making uh, is that we're not in control of the world. God is. Look, just keep on reading through these. Verse 16, he gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. It's all him. He's the king. This is a God you can trust. 
We saw earlier God sends the tender rains that water the earth, and we see now he's in charge of the storms as well. When God wields the ice and the hail, it's a reminder of his power, his purity, his justice. That's why the psalmist says, who can stand before his cold? The thought of approaching this God outside of salvation in Christ should be truly bone-chilling. And yet this same God of holiness and justice shows kindness to the world. As verse 18 says, he faithfully sends the warm breezes. Each year winter turns again to spring. He speaks his word and melts the frost. I wonder, has your heart been cold to God lately? If God can melt the ice of winter by his word, he can certainly melt your hardened heart. He can draw you back to intimacy with him. When God speaks, it brings life. And God inspired the biblical authors to write his word so that we now have his word in our hands in the Bible. Isaiah 55 says, My word shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When we finalized the adoption of our daughter, Lena, we had to go to the courthouse. At that time, we lived in Washington, D.C. So we went and we presented all of our paperwork and the judge looked over our case and then she made a pronouncement. Lena, our daughter, became legally and totally part of our family officially that day by a word, an effective word. But now here's the thing. When that judge goes home at night to her home and says, I think I'd like a turkey sandwich. It doesn't just magically appear. Her word is effective. It's powerful, but only in certain contexts, in a limited sphere. God's not like that. What God says happens. What he decrees will certainly come to pass. That's why we can trust him. Because when he ordains that we would be adopted into his family, it will be so. That is good news. No one can thwart his plan. No one can oppose him. He is a good God and he will prevail. And so the psalmist has this truth about God's effective word in mind. And this final contrast he gives us at the end of the psalm, verses 19 and 20, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Now, at first, this may seem like a somewhat perplexing way to end this happy psalm. I don't know if you felt that when I read it earlier. Is this just a form of ancient Near East trash talk? Ha, 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 we've got God's word and you guys don't? Is that what the psalmist is doing here? No. He's saying if we didn't have God's word, we'd be nothing. We didn't deserve God to reveal himself to us. God says in Deuteronomy, I didn't call you out and reveal myself to you because you were greater and you were stronger than the rest of the nations. I revealed myself to you because I love you. <sighs> That's grace. We, we only know God because he has shown himself to us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. 
But God in his kindness has given his word first to Jacob, his chosen people, and now he has sent his word in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and now he calls those from every nation to trust in the word that he has given to us, the word of God in scripture. What a privilege and what an honor to have his word, to know his word, and to now get to take that word to the nations. He calls us to proclaim it to all who need to hear it. And we can have confidence that when we proclaim God's word, Blake, you can have confidence each Sunday when you preach, when you declare God's word, it is effective. It will not return void. And you know what? I see that. I've gotten to meet several of you over this weekend. And I know that Blake's been preaching the word to you and the other elders have been declaring God's truth to you. And I see the fruit of the spirit in you all. Love and joy and peace patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. The Holy Spirit is working in this congregation by his word, and he will continue to do so. I want to tell you about my friend Maxine. Maxine is in her 80s. She's a member of the church that Blake and Julie and I were all a part of together in in Washington, D.C., and that church has a, a sweet and warm time of prayer most Sunday nights. And Often during the prayer meeting, we would ask Maxine to lead in prayer for the ongoing preaching ministry of the church. Maxine, please pray for whichever brother is going to bring us the Lord's word the next day. And Maxine was always happy to do it. And in her prayer, she would very often quote the verse, and she would quote it from memory, Jeremiah 23, 29. I can even hear her in her North Carolina accent praying and saying, Is not my word like fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Maxine knows that verse is true because she's been praying for God's word to go forth in that church for over 50 years, and she has seen lives transformed. She has seen sinners saved. She has seen broken marriages healed. She has seen runaway children, prodigals come back to the Lord. She knows that God's word is effective, and it's changed the way she prays. I pray that at at Chaffee Crossing, we would have some prayer warriors like Maxine here who pray for the preaching of the word, who pray for the women's Bible study, who pray for the Sunday school teachers, who pray that God's word would not return void. If you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, perhaps you have questions about what it would mean to follow Jesus or or who Jesus is, I would suggest the most powerful thing you could do this week is check out God's word in the Bible. Read it. Maybe you've read some of the Bible before, but have you ever allowed the Bible to read you? Here's what I would say. I would encourage you to, to read through the book of Mark or or the book of John, I encourage you to chat with Pastor Blake or anyone else, the person who brought you today about what you should read. But I would give you a warning. I would caution you to watch out as you read this book because it could turn your life upside down. You might just walk away utterly transformed. And if you are curious about that, there's dozens of people around who you could ask them about their experience in being transformed by the word of God. They would love to talk to you more about that. And because we've seen God work in our lives by his word, how do we respond? We praise him. We sing to him. We praise him for his strong comfort and his sustaining care and his sovereign command. 
So is anyone in charge of the universe and does he care? At age 13, Mes McConnell was not so sure. Those questions continued to plague him as life got worse. Drug addiction and crime led him to prison where he thought there surely is no reason I'm here. Life must be meaningless. But even in the midst of all the chaos, God was orchestrating things. This is how God works. You don't know that he's orchestrating the pieces of your life, but he is. And it just so happened that Mez stumbled upon some Christians. And they were playing soccer over there in Scotland. They call it football. And they invited him to play with them. Even though this was a guy who had just gotten out of prison. He was someone the world didn't seem to have much time for. But these Christians did. They said, hey, you want to hang out with us? Hey, we're, we're playing this. Hey, come grab a meal with us. Hey, who are you? What's your name? What's your story? Then he was back in prison, and these Christian friends visited him. He wasn't a believer yet. He was just a guy they had met. But they checked in on him. Hey, I want to just come and, and chat with you. Can I pray with you? Hey, who are these people? Why are you so nice? Why do you care about someone like me who, who the world has trodden over? But then it happened. Mez encountered God's effective word. He started reading the Bible. He started in the book of Genesis. As he read more and talked with his friends, he, he understood the good news of how Jesus died and rose to save sinners. Even someone like Mez, even someone like me. He writes, one day, I just sat looking at a flower. A simple daisy it was. I suddenly realized that this flower didn't get here by accident. It was created. It was quite clearly designed and perfect in every way. God was a reality that I had to face. That's the day that Mez repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. Today he pastors a church in Scotland that is very active in planting other churches. And do you see how God's sovereign command over creation, even over that simple daisy, and how God's sustaining care for his children came together in Mez's life. And how all of it came to that one moment when he finally knew the strong comfort of the God who welcomes exiles home. So to be sure, we can't answer every hard question that comes up in this painful world. On the final day, we will know in full, but, but now we, we know only in part we see in a glass dimly, Paul says. But Psalm 147 calls us to lift up our eyes and look nonetheless. Look at the proof that someone is in charge of the universe. You can look at that simple daisy that Mez looked at. Or you can look at the stars in their vast array. You can look at the tender rains that water the earth. Look at the power of the snowstorm and the ice and the hail. But don't just stop there. Look at what this God has done in history. Watch as he heals the brokenhearted. Watch as he feeds the hungry. Gaze on as he changes people by the power of his word. And even that's not the end. Look on farther still. Look to the hill called Golgotha, where we see the one who is nailed to a cross that we might be rescued from our exile. Look to the Son of God who wore a crown of thorns 
who was pierced to heal our deepest wound, look to Jesus and in his suffering, see God's sustaining care for you. And in his resurrection, see God's sovereign command over death and over life and life eternal. And then don't just look to Jesus. Sing. Make melody with thankfulness. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you praise because you are a good and worthy God. Far beyond what we have deserved is the grace that you have lavished on us. Your mercy, how tender, how true to the end. Lord, you have shown yourself not just to be the great creator, but our redeemer and friend. What a privilege it is that we can know you as the God who is strong and kind. The Lord who is ever faithful, who redeems us from exile, and who puts a new song in our hearts, a song of praise. And so we want to make melody to you with the lyre. We want to sing with thanksgiving in our hearts. We want to give you the praise that you deserve because of how you have saved us in Christ and how you've given us an eternal hope. Hope that we will dwell with you and sing your praises as we feed on the finest of wheat together in that new Jerusalem. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and sustain us until that day, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.